All right, let's get started here. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, we're going to read just a couple of verses. We're going to come back to these later. We're going to start reading in verse 35. just want to thank Sonny for the invitation. It's a privilege to be here to talk about some of these things that are near and dear to my heart. Our church's Gospel Grace Ministries, we're in the greater Cincinnati area. We're about 20 miles north of Cincinnati. Again, it's, it's good to be here. The title of the, the message today is, Has God Said? Question mark. If you remember, that's the, this is what Satan said to Eve, questioning God's word. Has God Said? Common Grace Attack on the True Gospel. Let's start reading in verse 35 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep of the slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oftentimes people today, they believe spiritual things. When I say that, I'm just talking about things that are related to God, the Bible, religion, so on. They believe these things because somebody just merely told them with really no basis, no biblical basis, no backing. The people that told them these things might maybe use tradition. They might quote maybe some theologians, maybe an old confession of faith, or maybe even a little bit of philosophy, which that, in other words, that would be their epistemology or, or their justification for believing what they believe. But if a, another person comes along and tells these people the truth from the word of God, the gospel truth, then a lot of times these people listening, there'll be some resistance. They'll find themselves stuck in a place of pride and self-determination, and they will refuse to admit that they're wrong. This is very typical. You probably experienced it yourself as you're preaching to people, trying to witness to people. But the truth is that a person only really believes what they know and understand from God's word. That's the way faith comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that's the way we can be sure and certain. And uh, we can rule out all the other humanism and stuff. And when, when I said what I said negatively about some of these other ways, now I'm not, there are certain traditions that are good traditions. We have our own confession of faith. I've got theology books. But those things have to be held in their proper place. The word of God is the final authority and is supreme over those other means. So anything other than this authoritative truth that comes from God's word is just really basically the old serpent whispering in the ear, the father of lies whispering in the ear, saying, has God said? Questioning the truth. So today we want to roll right into the subject of God's particular grace opposed to this idea or theory, which is heresy, of common grace. 
I would estimate that probably 95% of all who claim to be Sovereign Grace Calvinistic Reformed are people that hold to this theory of common grace. So in other words, you know, us that hold a particular grace are in the, the minority. The first time I ever heard of this doctrine was back in the uh, 90s. I think it was around 90-91. God saved me in 87. And in 91, I was talking to a guy who gave me a lot of theology books, and we talked about you know the gospel and things. And this thing came up of this thing called common grace, which I had never heard of, the terms, the technical terms, and what they meant. He explained what it meant, and I was like, are you serious? I mean, that's just Arminianism to me. And he said, well, that's, that's very astute. And I thought, it seemed like common sense. It's just raw on its face. It just seemed like, you know, Arminianism. And then looked into it even deeper and saw the implications and the particulars of it and have sought to expose it ever since. So this theory of common grace, it is uh, defended by those who hold it on two fronts. And uh, Sonny kind of briefly touched on these. It's, it's held in providence and salvation. You want to talk about those separately. Of course, the second is the most vital for me to talk about and expose because if it's tied to salvation, it's going to be a gospel issue. So in providence, so we know, we know God created the world and that same world that he created, he controls in every aspect. We're, we're absolute predestinarians. We believe that God predestinated all things he created he controls, and then in the realm of salvation, he controls both eternal life and condemnation. He's in charge of all those things. But in providence, they see it as in nature, and again, in the control of all things that he's created, anything that is beneficial to man in life. And they would consider these, sometimes they would call these blessings, which... I don't think it's a good word to use either for those things. So the main problem comes where they define these so-called blessings as calling it grace, which is the main offense to me of using that word grace to describe these, these benefits or these things that people get. But they claim this is because it's evidence that shows that God is has a favorable attitude toward all people, non-elect and elect alike. So, of course, again, when you use the word grace, this has far-reaching implications, and it goes into the gospel. I want to just, this is an abbreviated quote here. This is a three points of common grace, the CRC, Christian Reformed Church, document of 1924. Just to give you an idea of what they say concerning this thing of common grace. Point one, which concerns the favorable attitude toward humanity in general, not only towards the elect, there's also a favor or grace of God which shows to his creatures in general. The second point concerns the restraint of sin in the life of the individual man and the community. God, by his general operations of his spirit, without the renewing of the heart, restrains an unimpeded breaking out of sin by which human life in society remains possible. In other words, so it's not anarchy and chaos. The third point, which concerns the question of civil righteousness as performed by the unregenerate, the unregenerate, though incapable of doing any saving good, 
can do civil good. I'm tempted to talk about who can do saving good anyway. <laughs> the elect can't even do that. He goes on to say, God without renewing the heart so influences man that he's able to perform civil good. So there's the idea there, and I want to spend less time on that, of the idea of common grace in providence concerning things. What I want to get out, because it's a gospel issue, is in relation to the gospel and salvation, this theory of common grace. They say that God shows grace toward all men by the preaching of the gospel. He shows that he has grace toward them and a favorable attitude toward them. Now, I want to quote uh, John Murray, a couple of different quotes here. I have a lot of quotes to choose from. Burkhoff believes the same stuff here. But uh, just to reduce the time, I've, I've had other messages where I quote these other guys. But John Murray, volume four, page 132, says this in his works. The full and free offer of the gospel is grace bestowed upon all. Such grace is necessarily a manifestation of love or loving kindness in the heart of God. And this loving kindness is revealed to be of a character or kind that is corresponded with the grace bestowed. So, of course, he also taught that these benefits were for all people. That means that for the non-elect also, but what he taught that gets kind of scary is they're rooted in the cross of Christ. This is the most dangerous part of common grace. As they say, it's connected to salvation and the gospel. Murray goes on and he says, this is in his collective writings, volume one, page 63 and 64. Many benefits occur to the non-elect from the redemptive work of Christ. There is more than one consideration to establish this proposition. Many blessings are dispensed to men indiscriminately because God is fulfilling his redemptive purpose in the world, much in the way of order, equity, benevolence, and mercy. It is the fruit of the gospel, and the gospel is God's redemptive revelation centered in the gift of his son. So, I mean, when I hear things like this quoted or read things like this quoted, my mind goes to all kind of different texts that they take and pervert, especially there toward the end, the gift of his son. You see how they'll take John 3.16. God gave his son concerning the world. So... That would be an easy one that they would leap to and pervert. Uh, the next page on his works, he says this. He continues on. He says, in this view, we may say that in respect to these benefits, and, and here's here, this is it. you got to hear this. In respect to those benefits, he already talked about who the beneficiaries were. It extended to the non-elect. Christ may be said to have died for those who are the beneficiaries. In any case, it is incontrovertible that even those who perish are the partakers of the numberless benefits that are the fruits of Christ's death and that therefore Christ's death sustains to them this beneficial reference, a beneficial reference, however, that does not extend beyond this life. You know, as Sonny mentioned in his message before, it's like, so what's the use? You know, what's it, what good is it? 
So obviously we see here, this here is the most dangerous part of this, this theory of common grace when they, they tie it to what they hold in salvation and, and what their gospel is, especially because they root it in the cross of Christ. Of course, this affects the glory of God. It brings into question the very purpose of God in the death of Christ and what Christ actually accomplished by that death and who it was for. So again, if, if this idea is rooted in the death of Christ, then what is the next thing to be affected? Well, evangelism, of course, right? So we have the death of Christ in time as far as a historical event. We have the writers in the New Testament under the inspiration of the scripture writing about that death, right? And then as time goes on and God's people come into the world and they hear the gospel, they are to take that same message, that record, that testimony, and to propagate it and evangelize with it. So if you have a death that is common to all, that is rooted in the death of Christ as far as the ground of it, and is to be applied universally, and there's benefits in that death for people universally, you're going to have to adjust that message to make that work. And this is how the gospel is perverted by them describing the character of God and as they describe and preach out and teach the personal work of Christ. It perverts the gospel by this theory and heresy of common grace, which is rooted in their minds in the death of Christ. So in other words, it affects the very nature of God himself. It deals with what God Almighty actually desires according to his will. So in other words, his character attributes are involved. And so if, if God supposedly desires the salvation of all who hear the gospel, then again, the gospel must be altered to accommodate that lie. And the Wellman offer is that means that they use to bridge that gap. Murray, in another quote, um, it's one of my other messages. I didn't write down the exact reference, but he explained that this idea of God desiring something that is not in his decree in other words, he has unfulfilled desires. Murray said, that's, that's a mystery. You guys aren't smart enough to deal with this. It's a mystery. Just leave that alone. And then, you know, once he says that, he can just, just pass by it and people leave that alone. Because once you say something's a mystery, if you've got a crowd and you're famous, you're a theological professor at a college or whatever, and when you say those things, those things carry weight. And people say, oh... Dr. Murray said that, so I'm not smarter than him, so I better not touch it. People stop thinking if they even started in the first place. So false teachers, what they do is they blur the lines of distinction and clarity. I mean, that's my responsibility, uh, distinction and clarity. If I say something here today and and I walk out and, and half you people are scratching your head at, you know, and saying, I, I just, I really wonder what he said really the whole time. I didn't really... He wasn't clear. He was vague. I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. That means I failed, right? So they blur the lines of distinction and clarity. And what follows after that? Well, you can just introduce any heresy you want because people will just eat it up because it's grounded in, and founded on something else, not the word of God. 
So it blurs the lines, of course, between the distinctions of particular grace and common grace. And again, what that is, briefly, has God said. That's, that's Satan whispering in the air, has God said, questioning the truth of God's word. So we know this idea of rooting this common grace in the cross of Christ. We know the cross of Christ is the central theme of all scripture. Paul said he went into a church that had all kind of problems, the church of Corinth. You've, you've read about this church. And, and what was he going to do? Hold a bunch of seminars on behavior modification? He talked about behavior, no doubt about it. But what was his central theme and focus? I've determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. You touch Christ and him crucified, you're touching the gospel. And this is what is going on with this false doctrine of common grace. It's affecting the gospel. It's universalizing the atonement in some sense. And um, really it gets down and boils down to it's some form of, of righteousness on down the line that you're trying to establish through conditions of salvation that you fulfill through this offer by this supposed grace that is to all men without exception. So real grace, the kind we know about in the scripture, is, is, it doesn't enable one to do something to satisfy God for a righteousness. Real grace doesn't do that. Real grace sees by faith that God is satisfied in his son and then we see the Father's Son as our righteousness. And that's what the gospel preaches out, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, Romans 1.17. And really, here's something to think about, too, is both common grace and the well-men offer, they, they operate on a platform of unbelief. You're dealing with unbelievers. The focus of most of this is on unbelievers because, of course, a so-called offer comes before faith. So you're dealing with unbelievers. We read some quotes here by these guys that, that this grace is common to unbelievers, non-elect unbelievers. So it is, they're both operating, these twin heresies are operating on the platform of unbelief. And, and how is that? Well, not just chronologically how I mentioned that it's dealing with people before they believe, not just that, but... The appeal to these doctrines, it appeals to the natural defiled conscience of man uh, through like a self-directed means of, of these offers of repentance and faith. And you know, it would take a while to describe, I think, the varieties of how people view faith and repentance. And I could just restrict it to sovereign grace, Catholic reform kind of people but most of the time through this free offer, it's like, you know, a, a message just delivered. And it's like, if, if I can show you visually, it's like if, if God was handing out, a, handing out faith, he says, here's faith, do you want it? And we know from the scripture, that's, that's not at all what this is like. The word of God talks about how that faith is a work of God in the elect. He causes them to believe. And of course, this is through... Um, in Ephesians 1, there it says that this power that God works faith in his people is the same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead. Are you going to compete with that, with some flimsy offer? 
And then you would think you'd have to take credit for it, too. Because if there's an offer of faith, here's faith, do you want it? What are you going to use to take that offer? Don't you need some kind of intermediate faith to take the faith? This makes no sense. So the defiled natural conscience of, of the one that is not born again is really counting on self to do something to make the difference. Instead of, which the gospel would declare, that salvation is accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ, this satisfactory, effectual death and life, counted for God's people for acceptance before God. So that is, that's the difference between those two gospels. And what that does, it automatically shifts the assurance, the ground of assurance and acceptance to something else and not Christ alone. And so the people that hold to this, when they're presented with this kind of a message, these two kinds of messages that were brought today, uh, it, it's oftentimes responded with an offense, of course, hatred, and again, a resistance and a refusal to admit one is wrong and to submit to the truth. And of course, or unless the Holy Spirit gives real grace to the person to do so. So the, the fruit of all this, of the women offering common grace, the fruit of it is that one has to, he's bound to, interpret all these things, the whole system of their salvation, through the lens of the flesh. This again, I'm tying it to the natural defiled conscience. A conscience that has not been cleansed through the power of the Spirit, the work of God in the heart, through the means of the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. So we need to look at uh, the remainder of the messages. I want to kind of look at, here in a minute, this passage in, in Romans. I want to defend particular grace. As we go through here, I'll bring out some of the absurdities of, of common grace as we go down through here. We want to talk about the how and the why of effectual, simply means effective, love of God in Christ, as well as bring out that it was for a particular chosen people. So I mentioned earlier about distinctions. I'm big on distinctions. We have to be distinct when we're talking about two types of gospels. We, you know, we, we deal with the antithesis, the opposite. We want to preach the truth and expose the lie at the very same time. And that can be done. It should be done. And if it's not done, I don't think there's much clarity in people's minds that hear what we're saying. So God's gospel of his free and sovereign grace in it, it contains the doctrine of Christ. And in 2 John, it talks about if you don't have the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God, right? And it says for us not to fellowship with people that are not in that arena of the doctrine of Christ. Those that, that abide not and transgress in the doctrine of Christ, you got to mark them. You can't fellowship with them. can't call them brother and sister. If you call somebody a brother or sister, in Christ, you're saying you've got the same Christ, you've got the same gospel, you've got the same ground of assurance. So it's a pretty serious matter. It says you're a partaker of their evil deeds in their false doctrine. So, of course, we believe that knowing this and, and being involved in this, sometimes, you know, we'll talk to some people and, and as they grow, you know, they, they say, I just almost, they've been humbled, they've been crushed. 
And it's just like, I, I just can't hardly believe it. I, I just need to pinch myself. It's, it's almost a dream that, that I'm included in this number. You know, they've been humbled. They know that it has nothing to do with them at all. And so as a result, and we see the character of God in, in salvation that causes us to want to honor God's character, defend his glory, protect his name and his reputation. And nowadays, people would just as soon brag about their dog and the tricks that he can do than, than God or defend getting a fight about their favorite sports team or something like that. But of course, this is infinitely way more important and prior to our lives, so we should take this seriously. So the subject of the grace of God, when, when focused on the love of God, is where we see the stark difference between common grace and particular grace, because this grace is hooked up in the love of God and even rooted in, they say, in salvation, the death of Christ. So there's some twisting and perverting going on, obviously. And when false teachers misrepresent God, and that's basically what it is, misrepresenting God, his character, they create an idol in the ears of the listeners. Now, we read about idolatry, especially in the Old Testament, and it's usually these things that were hewn out of rocks or wood, maybe plated with gold and things. These are, these are things you can visibly look at, and God mocked idols. He said, um, look at you guys. you got to pick up these dumb idols and pick them up and carry them and move them. They can't even move themselves. I mean, you've got more power than they do, you know. That's not all that idolatry is. Idolatry, especially today, is people in their minds imagining, and the word imagine has image in there. They imagine, they hewn out an idol in their mind like a religious buffet. They say, I like God this way, I like him this way. And they collect these things up. Depending on what baloney they've heard from all these false teachers, they'll put together a God of their own imagination. And that's the way they want to see him. And uh, God's teachers will come along and talk about the God of the Bible that is distinct and who cares about his character, who's a jealous God. And he says, no, I'm this way. You thought I was altogether like unto yourselves, but no, I'm this way. Uh, again, there's an offense that rises up. So there's the mental image, the false image in their minds, rather than the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. From faith to faith refers to from the, the faith, the gospel, the message, the record, to the faith of the one God has given faith to. So that enfolds, it enfolds in action. When, when they lie about who God is with this common grace, it's in real time. And you see there's the creation in their mind concerning this false God. And it is a false God. We have to go that far. We need not sugarcoat it. So it changes the love of God into something universal and common instead of definite and particular and effectual. They detract from the power of God's love and imagine a love that actually fails for the majority of people. They turn the eternal, unchangeable, unconditional love of God into something that in the end, it dies out. And of course, we know most people 
I, I believe according to Matthew 7, the few verses of many, most people are going to end up in hell. So that kind of love has done nothing for anybody if the majority of whom it was directed toward ends up in hell. They change the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God in its divine purposes, and it ends up being, again, as I kind of mocked earlier, it's like a lame, stupid idol that maybe somebody's dog would have a little bit more sense than this false god that can't get the, get the job done. They destroy God's sovereignty of his love, his sovereignty and salvation concerning his love, as they strip him of the divine right of being God, of being who he is. And they turn the unconditional love of God and mercy of God into something that's an obligation to all people without exception. You know, think about that simple concept there. If you talk about, is God obligated to show mercy to everybody? You could even say anybody. Well, when you add the word obligation or the idea of obligation, you've just destroyed the definition of the word mercy, of the teaching out of what mercy is. Mercy is something God doesn't have to give. And we read that clearly in, in uh, Romans 9 which is an Old Testament quote. So all these people that are doing this, they're enemies of the true God, and they're naturally doing this. They're naturally doing it in ignorance. They're doing it sincerely. Sometimes in boldness, they're zealous. As far as you meet them, they might be you know, great people as far as people are concerned. So the idea is, is not to hate these people. It's the gospel that they're preaching that we despise. I mean, I, I believed this stuff when I was lost. So I remember where I came from, and I remember what total depravity is. So God made me to differ in revealing this truth to me through the means of the word of God. So they're in a state of what is just plainly Deception. They're deceived. In other words, they don't know that they're wrong. They don't know that they're believing a lie. Who would want to believe a lie if they knew it anyway? I mean, they would think, i got to figure this out. I can't believe this, but it's a lie. They're deceived. But to know the love of God, the God of the, of the Bible, of the Word of God, God himself must teach his people through the Word of God, his gospel, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look here about the love of God in Christ. This has to do with eternally, before the world was created, God the Father set his love on particular individuals. I'll give you the antithesis what it's not. He set his love on these particular individuals, not based on what they will eventually do in the future concerning other things like their bloodline, their position, their class, or who would they become. He didn't love them based on what they would do good or stop or not do bad. He didn't base it on that. But God's love is based on or conditioned on an appointed representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, God loves his people in, by, and through Christ, who is their appointed representative in surety, which was set up before the world began. This means it's conditioned on him, because of him, on his behalf, for his sake. So if, if you are a believer in the gospel, in this true God that we're talking about, if you're a believer, you're said to be in Christ. God does not love you because of you. He loves you for Christ's sake alone. That's a very, very simple concept. I hope you memorize it. I hope you tell everybody about it. Because if you get that thing twisted around, you're going to start judging your whole Christian life all crooked. And you're going to expect things because of you rather than because of Christ. And we're always loved in a substitute. We're chosen in a substitute. We're blessed in a substitute. So that's the difference in um, who teaches uh, the true gospel and the vast majority of other religious institutions out there. Look at verse 28 of Romans 8. We're going to go through some of the arguments, speed it up. Go through a few of these verses here. And I just want to pick out some high points. Very famous verse. We know that all things work together for good. Notice this. To those who love God. I mean, right away there's a distinction. There's particular people it's talking about. This is not everybody. It's to those who love God. Further, it describes these people. To those who are called according to his purpose. I think the King James says the called according to his purpose. Here's a question. Do all people without exception love God? Obviously not. Starting back in verse 6 of the same chapter, it talks about the carnally minded, in other words, those of the flesh. The carnally minded, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So for the carnal mind to be enmity with God, it just means... There's hostility there, there's opposition, there's hatred in the mind of, the, of the, the carnal mind. So I ask again, do all people love God? No, I mean, these verses here prove that easily. But the promise in verse 28 that all things work together for good is only to those who love God. Now, let's not get the cart in front of the horse. Don't get the thing switched around. Our love to God is not the cause of all these good things happening to us or all these things becoming good in reference to them happening to us, God working them together for good. And we, we don't merit good things by what we do, not even in providence. We'll get to some of that here in a minute. So those who love God are who? Who are these people? Well, they're evidenced by those who believe the gospel says those who are called, that's in reference to called by the gospel, and the ones that only have mercy in Christ. These are simply the love of God toward his people. It has a successful effect, and they're caused eventually to love him back. That's the effect God's love. If he loves you in eternity, some point in time in your life, you will love him, and that is at the point of conversion, you'll start loving God. You don't even know him before then. And there's a hatred before then. 
So those that never love God throughout their whole lifetime, it's evidence they are not loved by God. We know that we love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So God's love has a successful effect. Let me say one more thing about that concerning us loving God. Now, I hope just for a second you don't think that our love meets some form of a standard that matches the true standard of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Lord Jesus Christ loved the Father perfectly. One of the commands is to love God, right? We readily admit that our love falls short. Do you want to... People in general, all they, all they want to do, people in general in religion, what they, what they like doing is comparing themselves among themselves. Oh, I love God better than this guy over here loves God. Well, you got to pick the worst one, right? Just like I'm better than Hitler. You know, I'm better than Stalin and all these murders. Well, swing wide the gates. Come on in. You're better than... That's not the standard. The standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your love better than Lord Jesus Christ? It's not. Do you want to enter into judgment right now based on your love to God? I don't. I want to enter into judgment based on the love of Christ to the Father and that credited to my account. That's how I'm accepted anyway. I'm accepted in Christ. His vicarious obedience for me toward the Father is counted for my obedience. That's what I want to be accepted in. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, referring to this affection, an appointed affection relationship, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son for him to be the firstborn among many brothers. But whom he predestinated, these he also called, and whom he called, those he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So you notice quite clearly here that when God eternally, wisely, sovereignly determines in his purpose and sets his divine love on a particular people, that individual, those, those people, they are set apart. That's what God does. He, that, that's, a, that's a form of really eternal sanctification in that sense, in that God set them apart in eternity for this purpose that will eventually unfold. He set them apart to receive gracious salvation benefits, the ones that we've already listed, foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, glorified. None of the non-elect receive these. They're not for them. God doesn't even pretend. He doesn't talk. He doesn't throw out bait. And it's not for them. Actually, the opposite goes toward them. Really, no things work together for good to the reprobate. So, God's grace is particular, in other words. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? These things just mentioned. These five things. This as some call the golden chain of grace. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
So God reveals these implications of this truth, of his whole salvation, all of his salvation. This is God's free and sovereign grace conditioned on Christ for his people. When he, when he reveals the implications of that, what does that look like? How you can take it, it's yours. He gives it to us. He saturates our mind with it throughout the whole word of God. All these treasures that we have in Christ, we read about. And that's where peace of mind is. That's where we find rest. And that's where we can have assurance and security. This other God that's talked about that makes these unfulfilled desires and these, these other things going on. He's like iffy. That God's like iffy. I, I wouldn't trust a God like that. A God that fails for the majority of people, what kind of assurance could you have? Like you're thinking, I'm, I, might be, I might be next, you know, as far as getting rejected. So this God, this true God, if he is for you, like the text says here, if you're a believer, he's for you, it doesn't really matter who's against you. You know, the whole world's pretty much going to be against you, all unbelievers, and, and Satan will be the great accuser, will be against you. So when your spiritual mind, if you're a believer, when your spiritual mind is exercised in these things, exercised in the gospel, then these things, they should cause you to be able to lay down your anxiety, to lay down your worries, your fears, your burdens. The more that you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be able to lay these things down. Verse 32, truly, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on defending particular redemption here where it says delivered him up for us all. It's obvious in the context that he's writing to believers in Rome, first of all, saints, because uh, we know one thing that. All people without exception don't freely get get all things. Usually, right in the context, things are easily proven. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? This is who verse 32 is talking about. It's God who justifies. So the question is, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God the one that justifies. So for God's people to have been given a perfect righteousness, which was earned or merited, brought in by Christ, established by Christ for his people. They will never, they will never or can ever have their sins that they commit, even after faith, imputed to their account. Those sins will never be imputed to their account. So this is talking about negative charges or crimes or law breaking. Now you'll have sinful people and you'll have Satan again be the one that is the accuser. And even in this point right here, this gospel point, this good news of having sins covered, having sins put away, and God has cast them, he's cast them in a place where they're not going to be found and they're not going to be held against you. Sure, he chastises, he, he works in his people. It causes his people to strive to obey. But these charges are not going to stick because it's God that justified. The charges stuck on Christ. Christ took care of them. That's why we have what we have. 
So they will try their best, these people that try to water down grace and add works, they'll try their best in their own self-righteousness to level charges against believers concerning these things. But God, of course, uh, legally charged his people with a gracious, free, unconditional gift of Christ's righteousness. That's a legal reckoning. That's a legal transfer and imputation, a positive charge. In other words, it comes from our out, you know, outside to us. It's not a personal righteousness that he lights a fire and it improves. That's Roman Catholic doctrine. That's Lordship Salvation doctrine. But Christ alone, in Christ alone, we have this new position, this new status, and this totally new identity in Christ. I don't identify with myself. The old man was crucified with Christ. Did that happen to the non-elect? What can common grace do with something like that? Nothing. Nothing. So this is the purposed result of the expression of the love of God towards his people in Christ. Sonny read some verses earlier, Psalm 5.5, talking about that God actually does hate some people. Referring to Matthew 7, where at the end there, uh, depart from me you that work iniquity, I never knew you. We know that's not talking about, I mean, Christ is omniscient. He knows all things. It's not like people are coming to judgment and he's looking at them judging them. Hey, I never met you before. I didn't know anything about you. It's talking about a relationship, an affection. I didn't, I've never entered into a covenant concerning you. Never. And of course, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Romans 9. So that one, Romans 9, 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What is the objection to the religious from the religious people concerning that text? False teachers will say, well, the word hate, contextually, it's comparative language. And, and that is used. If you love your mother, sister, brother more than me, and then it says you got to hate your mother, sister, you know, that's comparative language, using it that way. But they'll bring that here. They'll say that's comparative language, meaning that God loves Esau less than Jacob. They say it's not hate. He loves Esau less. So that would have to say that God loves less the worker of iniquity. To depart from you that work iniquity, I love you less. That would be saying that, right? That'd be on par with saying that. Well, this is the most perverted, blasphemous thing that you could ever dream up, but that has to be stated to retain that whole false system. So since it's irrefutable truth that the way and the reason God loves his people is in, by, and through Christ, because of him, conditioned on him, on his behalf, for his sake, then, then what you need to see is the other side of that argument. If you take their argument that Esau is loved less than Jacob, then what you would have to also do is bring that to the other side and say, those who were not chosen by God, the non-elect, in other words, the reprobate, that God loved them less in Christ. We've already saw where the love of God is. It's in Christ. Could we say that? Could we, like the common grace guy, you would think would have to be forced on down the line, the implications to say that. God loved Esau less 
in Christ. He didn't love him in Christ at all or any other sense. So this is silliness. The whole thing's silly. It's foolish. There's no in-between in this salvation. God either loves or he hates. And they're both sovereign. God's love and hate is both sovereign. They're, they're both unconditional. Uh, I, I believe in unconditional double predestination. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Same chapter, first verse. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who is he that condemns? So that, again, the ground and basis of removing the condemnation for God's people was the fact that Christ took on their sin, all their sin, not just their past sin, their current sin and their future sin, all of their sin. He took it on. It was imputed to him. And he was condemned for it because he, he bore their sin in his body. Imputation is that effectual where when Christ was imputed with the sin of all God's people, Christ became guilty for their sin. And he was condemned in their place as an effectual substitute. So here's the question there. Where are the benefits for the non-elect there? They're not there at all. Not. Zero. So we have, again, the accusers laying charges or condemning, but God is the one who shows that these charges won't stick. We know that Christ, in the end, the Father gave judgment over Christ. Christ is going to be the judge. We see in Matthew 7, it's actually a prophecy there, what's going to be happening in the future. Many will say to me in that day, and he sets up this whole scene of the majority of people, not talking about cults, he's talking about under the umbrella of Christianity. In my name, he's talking about Christ, who called him Lord, are going to be saying, but Lord, Lord, did not, you know, they're going to be bragging on their works, in other words. Christ is the judge there in that situation. So think about it. There's going to be a decorative judgment for us. We're declared righteous at glorification. Come on in, good and faithful servant. Not based on what you did, but what I did for you. So Christ is the judge. What else is he to his people? He's our advocate. It's kind of a stacked courtroom. He's the judge and the lawyer, right? What else? Let's stack more on it. We're not under law. We're under grace. It sounds like a sovereignly rigged system by God in our favor in Christ. Amen. And it's all just and faithful to his character. He's both a just God and a savior. He doesn't cheat. So this is what God's love in Christ accomplishes for his people as he takes care of it through the death of the son. Look at the second part of verse 34. It is Christ who died, but rather who is raised and who is also at the right hand of God who intercedes for us. So we know there was sufficiency in and of itself. His death is sufficient by itself to do the saving, in other words. You're not the catalyst. You're not part B to add part A to make everything gel. You know, you don't add to his death to make it work. His death was sufficient, effective, satisfactory, definite, finished. And it results in the salvation of all God's sheep. There at the end of that verse, it says, who also intercedes for us. Does Christ intercede for the non-elect? Is he up there wringing his hands, worried, anxiety, begging, hoping? Some say that 
that God stands back and, and, and common grace and well and offer is something that gives the non-elect space to repent. That's almost like the Armenian idea of giving them a chance or an opportunity. As if, uh, okay, I got repentance somewhere. Let me pull out my back pocket. <laughs> repentance is a gift. God is not stupid. If he's the giver of the gift, which he is, is he waiting around to see, should I give him repentance? Am I gonna, I don't really remember if this guy's set up for an appointment for me to give him repentance. Ridiculous. Here's a quick verse in 1 John 4.10. Herein is love. You want to hear about love? Herein is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And what? It's tied to the cross. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we know propitiation is always effectual. It always works. Otherwise, you can't use the word. It's a satisfaction that satisfies. Verse 35 of the text, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So here's where we're starting to get a little bit further into the love of God in Christ. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Now all those things listed there. Most people would read those and consider them like kind of negative. You know, like you're not really wanting to sign up for those things, right? Now these things here listed are things that happen to the elect sometimes. God deals with all people differently when it comes to providence and things that happen to them. But distress happens to the elect, right? Famine, persecution. Persecution is promised to the elect. All these things happen to the elect at some point in time throughout history. So if you... Use your basis for common grace to be God sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, the non-elect and the elect. You would have to look at these verses here and say, well, that would mean that he doesn't send these things on the elect. This is the irrationality of taking their argument and flipping around on them and say, if that's the basis, if you're just using philosophy to interpret texts, we can play philosophy and defeat your argument. That's not our purpose. It's just one thing you can show just the absurdity of many different ways. You can show the absurdity of their of their arguments. So, I mean, Sonny referred to the, the, the rain earlier, and we've seen maybe some memes on social media about Noah and the ark and all that and how the same rain that gives growth and nourishment to, to crops is the same rain that can drown people in a flood by the judgment of God. Same thing. So rain causes crops to grow. Lack of rain causes famine. Sometimes God's people have experienced famine. So if I'm a believer and there's a famine in the land and I see people dropping around me and I think I'm, I'm going pretty soon, I'm dying of a famine, I guess God didn't love me because there's a famine. He didn't see it send rain. It doesn't jive. You just can't, you can't work it that way. The math doesn't work out. It's not a good basis for judging on whether or not God loves or doesn't love. You experience all kinds of things in your life. Maybe you've lost a job. Again, the elect could starve through a famine. The elect can get cancer. The elect can be murdered. Just because God loves the elect doesn't guarantee these things won't happen. 
So getting or not getting providential things proves nothing for elect or non-elect, either one. Just, just wipe that idea out. Don't use it. It doesn't work. Count on what God says about what he does when he shows a particular grace on his people sovereignly. That's the only thing you can do. It's sure and certain. Verse 36, that is as written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep of the slaughter. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So again, whether hatred, persecution, accusation, doesn't matter. If God's for us, and the love of God is in Christ, that's how and why that death for us is the victory that's already been won and secured. And that's the basis of the platform which he gives everything. How shall he not freely give us all things because of that? Verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able, in other words, pretty much everything, he throws a blanket statement out there, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It would be good for you to memorize that last part there and keep it in your mind. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you forget the idea of this truth, it's, you're going to be miserable. You're not you're going to lack when it comes to assurance. Scripture says in, in also in first John, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He who fears has not been perfected in love. So before a person is a believer, they have a fear that is a dreadful fear, fear of punishment. Like they, they operate under, again, the defiled conscience that says, I better do, I better do this or I'm going to go to hell. I got to obey so I can get to heaven. I got to not do certain things so that I can stay out of hell. The two false motives in false Christianity. So it's, it's a dreadful fear, always afraid of, of condemnation and, and being guilty all the time. So that dread, when one is converted, the conscience is cleansed, the gospel is received through faith, you give them repentance from the false ideas about who God is, who Christ is, and who you are. You're stripped of your righteousness and your pride, and you see that God it's both a just God and a Savior, and you're safe and secure, and you find rest in Christ. And then your fear turns into a different kind of fear. It's a fear of reverence and honor and respect at the awesomeness of God. You have an awe toward him. You treat his name different. You protect his character. You have a love for him. So, again, this is the peace. Once, once that comes, this is the peace that surpasses natural understanding, human understanding. This is the peace that only God can give in Christ. So at conversion, really, you know, of course, repentance is a change of mind. So the whole, like the whole script flips. It, it becomes opposite day of what you formerly thought. Because before, you know, you thought that this, there was this grace that was almost like prevenient grace which is very close to common grace, that God, it's, it's enabling grace. He assists you, some form of synergism where you cooperate, you're, you're part of it. And God enables you to satisfy him by meeting certain conditions. 
It's false gospel from the start. And that's something you formerly believed more than likely in, in even just your natural thinking. And that was based on your natural conscience. Just to make it plain and simple, I mean, I wish I could spend, after we're dismissed, like three messages on the con on the conscience, like an hour apiece. I would love it because I love talking about it because people, it's the most unspoken subject and it's, it's the most deceiving subject if you don't know about it because, of course, it's tied to self-righteousness, which is the most deceiving sin. Self-righteousness cannot be detected by the conscience. All forms of immorality is detected by the conscience, the law written on the heart, right? Even if you don't have the tablets of stone, the letter, it's written on the heart. So when immorality is done, the conscience reacts. What does the conscience do? It gets busy. There's fear, there's condemnation. I got to do something to reconcile myself to God. So I'm going to do something that's righteous to make up for my unrighteousness. That's the trigger, the function of the conscience under the law. That's what it does. Self-righteousness, the fruit of that conscience, the defiled conscience, cannot be detected by the conscience. It can't. Self-righteousness is the worst thing that can ever be done by an unregenerate sinner. But they're thinking all along, this is the very best thing that I can do to make myself accepted with God, whatever that thing is. So you see the trap? 2 Timothy 2, you can read another time toward the end of that chapter. It talks about repentance in acknowledging the truth so that they can recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who takes them captive at his own will. And again, this has to do with this defiled conscience. And the reason I'm bringing up conscience, not just I like talking about it, and I, and I do a lot, but in connection with common grace, the common gracers, the conscience plays a big part in keeping society civil, right? I mean, if um, somebody's wanting to kill me, somebody like way bigger than me that probably could, maybe has some weaponry. And they might think, I don't want to because I'll go to jail. Well, that's their conscience telling them they're going to pass by that, that murder of me, right? And I'll take that. I'll take that in society. I'm glad it's there. But the conscience that's operating inside there it's not just temporarily. All those, all those self-righteous sins of pride and unbelief and so on that's contained in a defiled conscience are not just going to stay there. They're going up to judgment with those people. And God is going to judge those people based on those sins out of that defiled conscience. And they're going to be held accountable for it. But they use, common gracious use the conscience and the law a lot for those ideas. So again, the script flips, everything's different. Our, our thoughts come in alignment with God's thoughts, and we grow in God's thoughts and his ways. Where before, they were nowhere near. They were opposite. So paramount to uh, true believers' confession is that they repent from dead works and their formal idolatry. In, in other words, 
they merely just don't switch doctrines. They don't come in, hey, I, I see this particular grace doctrine. I used to hold the common grace, and they've just like, I picked up a new doctrine, you know, and they just pick up these new doctrines. It's not that they've changed doctrines. God's people change gods because the God of that false doctrine is a false God, just like Arminianism, which is common grace's stepbrother, same thing. They're almost one and the same. And that's what I tagged it as the very first day I heard it. I said, that's Arminianism. It's all self-directed, self-generated. It's self-boasting. So God does not retroactively legitimize a lie concerning his son. God only uses his gospel. There are other different aspects we could go on and on about common grace and what it causes and the implications of how bad it is, and it's bad. We just barely skim the surface here today, both on the Wellman Offer and, and um, common grace. But, and I'm sure all of us, as we look at these things, we'll learn more and more and more. And I look forward to that. And again, appreciate the time coming here and hope you're edified somewhat in what was said here today.